0: We come this morning to a meditation on thanksgiving in distress. Thanksgiving in distress. This is the Sunday nearest thanksgiving, the day we celebrate all the blessings which the Lord has given to us, mostly food, but other things as well if we are thoughtful. and Really, we don't know in this time and place what fear and want and danger are. Oh, of course... Each of us is aware of certain instances, but on the whole, we are mighty blessed in this country and in this time. Even though there are dark and sinister forces at work, which we can see more and more in the news and in our community and in our families. Many, however, of the Lord's people are in dreadful circumstances for decades. All their lives, really. You think about Christians in China and what relentless persecution they suffer. You think about Christians in Arab lands and how oftentimes they're persecuted. And the poorer they are and the more helpless they are, the more they're subject to insane acts of barbarism and misconduct. There was the devastating persecution by the Roman Empire of the church in the early 300s where they tried to systematically destroy all the copies of the written word of God, and they martyred countless numbers of believers. In a secular sense, you can think of the Jews in Europe during World War II. Can you imagine the distress, the horror, of being in a Nazi concentration camp, being worked to death, being starved to death and being subject to being shovelled into ovens and incinerated, some of them alive or marched into gas chambers, and no hope of rescue, no hope of rescue and we think of the mass extermination camps that that were there, we think of the terrors of Isis, we think also of the terrors of Parents with sick little children, with cancer, for example, that are not expected to survive, and how desperate they are, what distress they're in. And yet, the scriptures say to us, in everything, to give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. The issue before us is if we were amongst those groups of people in such horrible conditions, could we give thanks in everything, and would we? Give thanks in everything. You know, Jonah gives us a stark example of thanksgiving and prayer in the midst of great distress. Have you ever thought of that? You know the story of Jonah that he was a prophet of God and God told him to go preach to Nineveh. Well, see, that was strange. It was a bad omen as far as Jonah was concerned. Why is that? Well, because... God almost never sent a prophet to a foreign land to prophesy and warn of judgment. Did that mean that God might turn the people of Nineveh away? Away from their sin and God might rescue them? So this is the story of Jonah and you remember that instead of doing what God wanted him to do, He fled the other way to escape, as he puts it, the presence of the Lord, which is really funny because later on he would discover that the Lord was with him. Thank God he was with him in the depths of the sea. He fled from the Lord and he got into a boat. Interesting that he fled from the city of Joppa, and you remember that the Apostle Peter was in Joppa when God's Spirit told him to go carry the gospel to a Gentile Cornelius and Peter objected didn't he but he didn't flee from Joppa he obeyed the Lord's commandment and a great revival brought broke out there amongst those Gentile uh, people whom the Lord would redeem in Jonah 1 at verse 7 we read this they said everyone to his fellow come and let us cast lots this is the sailors talking in a boat which has now been overcome with tempestuous seas and billows the point where they don't believe they're going to survive. "'Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us.' So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. "'Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. "'What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? "'And what is thy country?' And of what people art thou? Then he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who hath made the sea and the dry land. Now, I think that last line is what really pushed them over the edge because it says, then were the men exceedingly afraid. Because their gods, you know, weren't the gods of the sea and of the land, of the waves, of the billows, of the wind. And so it turned out that in their time of crisis, they had picked completely useless gods. They didn't need good crops. They didn't need rainy weather. They didn't need all kinds of things that their gods were picked out supposedly to be experts and the purveyors of goodness in. No, they had got the wrong god. And Jonah had the right god and it was just bad luck for them, wasn't it, that the god of Jonah was the very same god that was in control of the sea. So they put two and two together real fast and realized that this was the retribution of God against Jonah. And since Jonah acknowledged that he was the God of the sea, who made the sea, why then that made it very clear that this was a personal thing between Jonah's God and Jonah, and on account of his sin. They said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So Jonah fled to the very place that Jonah admitted was the place that God had made in the first place. And from their point of view, that wasn't a very smart thing at all because if they had offended one of their gods, they would have probably figured out something that their god wasn't in control of to flee to so they'd be safe, see? See? But Jonah hadn't done that. And if Jonah had been more expansive, he could have said, not only is he the God of the sea and of the land, he's the God of everything who made all things. And in fact, it was a futile attempt by Jonah to escape from God anywhere. You remember the It says, If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take wings of a dove and fly to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. So they're in a big mess, and Jonah's in a big mess. Jonah says the only solution is to throw him overboard, and then the sea will be calm for their sake. It is interesting to me, and greatly gratifying, that these sailors dreaded to do so, that they didn't want to throw Jonah over into the sea. It is a sign of common grace and of the law written on the heart that they strove mightily to save the ship because they, as sailors, had a duty to rescue from the sea any anytime a ship comes across someone floating in the sea, doesn't matter country, doesn't matter war, doesn't matter nothing. Their duty is to pull those people out and try to save them. And of course, there's a selfish basis for it. They they hope that if they ever fell overboard, someone would come kindly and rescue them. But they are so intimately acquainted with the violence of the sea and the deadliness of the sea and the impossibility of a man to survive on the sea. That's why it's such a horrible, grotesque crime for an army or navy to shoot rescue boats that sailors jump into when their ship is sinking to shoot those down in the water and basically destroy the sailors who are about to drown. And yet, this happens in our own world. So these sailors had a duty, a moral duty, which is impressed upon them by God, which society also would press upon them to save people from the sea. And so they resisted disobeying God's command against murder because that's what it was tantamount to, casting Jonah into the sea. I think if Jonah had had more consciousness of their scruple, he could have just thrown himself into the sea and saved them all that trouble. It's interesting that this particular attitude of sailors comes down even to this day. It is a rule of the sea. But Jonah had disobeyed God's command to go and preach at Nineveh. And sure enough, in the end, Jonah's concern about preaching at Nineveh was fulfilled to his worst nightmare. Because when he did finally make it to Nineveh to preach, all of Nineveh repented and cried out to God for mercy and God spared Nineveh. And this was bad for Jonah because Jonah hated Nineveh because all of Israel hated Nineveh for its crimes against their nation and its bloodthirsty wars, and they were the implacable enemies of each other. And Jonah didn't want Nineveh to be rescued. About 20 years ago, I preached a sermon about how Jonah had too much faith, you see. He believed God's word that whoever called on him would be saved. If you read in Jonah 4, after the Lord rescues Nineveh because of Jonah's preaching, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thou of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You can imagine the antipathy that all that revealed in Jonah's heart towards the people of Nineveh. And he was angry with God for showing mercy to them and saving them. But Jonah, for all of his bad characteristics and all of his selfishness and all of his disobedience and all of his refusal to preach to warn the people of Nineveh that the Lord might have mercy on them. For all of those bad characteristics, and attempt to thwart God, he gives us a good example of thanksgiving in the face of great danger. Thanksgiving in the face of great danger. For God has prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, so that as he sank down into the billows and watery darkness, that fish snapped him up and rescued Jonah from drowning. Now, of course, Jonah was still in very, very big trouble. Now he wouldn't drown. Now he would be slowly digested in the belly of this great fish which the Lord had sent to swallow him up. You know, God could have sent another boat Along to pick Jonah up out of the water, but he used this fish instead. And Jonah was struck by this. Jonah understood that this was the rescue of the Lord from his death by drowning. Jonah did not view this intervention of this fish as a mere random event or as a worsening of his condition so that he might moan and complain to God that he really hadn't saved him. That's just not how Jonah viewed it at all. Look at what it says in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and he said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. So you see that Jonah testifies in his prayer to God, that he had prayed as he sunk down into the waters as he was about to drown in the tempestuous sea, that he had cried out by reason of his trouble unto the Lord, and he heard me. How did Jonah know he heard Well, because he sent a fish to swallow him up so that he might not drown. So that he might not drown. Thou heardest my voice. Now, the point that I'm trying to make throughout this message can be made right here. That Jonah is giving thanksgiving for a rescue by God which is as yet incomplete and fraught with danger. And yet Jonah was giving praise to God that he had rescued him from death by drowning. And that the Lord must have some purpose in that and for which He was thankful. And how often do we fail to be so thoughtful and thankful to God when He brings along a temporary or partial rescue from some terrible thing? And all we can think about is that we're still not saved, not perfectly saved from this situation, and we don't give God thanks for the step-by-step kindness and goodness of God to His people whom He loves. So he's still in grave danger. He might be digested and consumed by the fish. God answered Jonah's prayer for rescue from death. Now, we got to remember whose fault all this is. Jonah cast into the sea for his own sins against God. Jonah knew that. Jonah understood that truth that it was really God that cast him into the sea. Oh, he used means. He used human means. But he was in this mess entirely from his own sinful acts. And isn't that the truth with so many situations we get into? If we think about it, we can figure out you know, what we did, crazy, stupid, wrong, irresponsible, that got us into this mess in the first place. And yet, when God sees fit to provide rescue, even if it's only part way rescue, we're to give Him thanks. And here Jonah, in the greatest of distress inside this fish under the deep waters of the sea, is giving thanks to God for His kindness to Him, for His sending rescue to Him. So if you think about whose fault it was, well, it was the sailor's fault for throwing him over, wasn't it? It was Jonah's fault for his disobedience and attempting to flee from the presence of the Lord and the Lord chasing him down. But it was also God that did it, wasn't it? God raised up the tempestuous sea, and Jonah well knew that because God is the God of the sea. This caused the sailors in desperation finally to throw Jonah overboard. But ultimately, it was God that did it. It was God who was responsible for it. And we see this in Jonah 2 3. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Jonah must have been reading the book of Job, because Job was always quick to ascribe the God to give to God the due for having a purpose and being the cause of his trouble. And we've preached on that at length in other contexts. But here, God cast him into the deep. It was God's billows and God's waves that passed over him. He doesn't try to blame tropical depression or those evil sailors that took his word and threw him overboard. No, he sees that God cast him into the deep as the judgment for his disobedience. God used means. God used human means. God used physical storms and winds and so forth. But he knew it was God's judgment that God threw him into the sea because of his disobedience. Now, you'll be surprised to know that there are many heretics that call themselves Christians who take offense when you point out verses like this to them point out God's sovereign ordination of all things, all human decisions, that God is ultimately ultimately, the cause of all these things. Why? Because He's the creator of all things. You and I can't be the ultimate cause of anything. Our decisions, our likes, our dislikes, because we didn't create ourselves. God did. He made us like we are. And here... If you tell people that God is responsible for this disaster and they're not familiar with Jonah chapter 2, verse 3, they'll tell you that you're sullying the honor of God. All they're trying to do is to stand up for God's perfection and holiness and the fact that He is not the author of evil. You're making God out to be evil by saying that. But here Jonah says it in a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord. Because Jonah understood the mighty power of God. And that's the thing almost nobody in this world understands these days. That God has all power, all knowledge, all authority. And He works all things after the counsel of His own will. But Jonah puts his finger on the ultimate truth. He was thrown into the deep because God put him there using human means. And then in verse 4 we see, what Jonah thought and what he hoped for. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. So for a moment Jonah thought that he must be out of God's sight. There was no hope for him. God can't can't save me in the belly of a fish down deep in the sea. That's just too far. It's too far gone. It's too much to expect. I think there's always a time in our lives when we think that we're in a place that God's powerless to save, powerless to rescue, powerless to provide for. And here this thought crosses Jonah's mind, but he's already discovered that's not true. He's already prayed for God to rescue him. Even in his doubt, even in his lack of faith, he's cried out to God to rescue him. And God has rescued him. And notice the hope, yet, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. So you see, he is focusing his attention on that place in the land of Israel where the Lord dwells and that they were told to pray toward. And so he does that, even though some people would say that he's outside the reach of God in this dark, lonely, and dangerous place. But Jonah was never out of God's sight. And yet he trusts in God even in such desperate and deadly trouble that one day he would worship Him at the temple. So there is a great hope there that Jonah expressed in his ultimate salvation. Now Jonah expands upon the hopelessness of drowning. And drowning is a terrible way to die. There is something built into the psyche and to the mind of humans, at least. I don't know whether animals have it, that it's called the drowning reflex. It's a reflex of absolute terror. It's one reason why so many people drown is because they're grasped by this so much that they can't act rationally. And so they just flail around rather than doing what people have told them to do in a case like that which is not to flail around, but rather to crawl, to try to crawl across the surface of the water. And if you do that, you'll find out you're swimming. But when panic attacks and when the fear of suffocation by drowning grabs hold of you, there's really almost nothing you can do, rational or otherwise. The struggle for breath, the torture, of it. That's why waterboarding is such an effective method of torture because it takes hold of the psychic fear of drowning which is an automatic thing. It's built in somehow into the automatic actions of the brain and it can hardly be resisted by anybody. And this is what Jonah was expressing in verses 5 and 6. The waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottom of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. So there is an expanded description of the trouble Jonah was in, the terror that he was in, and that God saved him from. How? By sending a fish to swallow up Jonah. See, fish don't have a problem with those terrors, do they? They love it. They love to live down in the deep waters. They don't have to breathe air like we have to. It's interesting that God used one of His creatures that is not subject to such terror and fear to rescue one of His sinful loved ones who was subject to the terror and the fear of drowning. But God rescued him from drowning. Look at the end of verse 6. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. You see how he is ascribing to God the sinning of the fish and the swallowing of Jonah by the fish. He's comparing it to having his life brought up from corruption. He's been rescued from drowning and death. And he gives God the praise for it. He gives God the praise for it. Jonah cried out to God for rescue and God heard his prayer. Verse 7 When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thy holy temple. This is his rejoicing that he remembered to call upon the Lord in all of his distress. And that his prayer made it into the temple of the Lord. The Lord did receive his prayer. The Lord did hear his prayer. Not only can God reach down into the depths of the sea, but also the prayers of the Lord's people can reach up from the depths of the sea into the ear of God. And this is what Jonah is marveling about. Contrast this with idol worshipers, which we see in verse 8. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. People have problems interpreting this, but it can be interpreted as follows. That he's contrasting his worship of his god and his calling upon his god with those people who worship idols lying vanities false gods if you will those people who do that they walk away from god's mercy to false gods who can show no mercy you see they abandon their own mercy there there would be mercy for them from the lord but they've turned their back on him and followed after idols. And the idols can't do nothing for them. There's no mercy from an idol, from a false god. It just sits there like a rock or like a stump. And no matter how much you scream and holler to it and beg and plead, it's inanimate. It has no power, no will, no authority, no nothing, and yet people cut down trees and carve them and cover them with gold and silver and worship them as their gods How foolish and how silly that is. But then notice in verse 9, Jonah gives thanksgiving to God for delivering him from the drowning and anticipates God's complete deliverance. Verse 9, But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. You see, Jonah is looking forward to a time when he will be able to do more than give thanksgiving to the Lord. He will be able to make sacrifices in the temple at Jerusalem in praise to his God who has saved him from drowning. And notice that Jonah anticipates that not only has God saved him from drowning in the sea, but he will save him from the belly of this fish. He will save him from the belly of this fish. And why is that? Because salvation is of the Lord. This sacrifice of thanksgiving, which we are commanded to be always giving to our God, is the one which Jonah has already begun even after he has only been partially rescued from so devastating a condition. Salvation is of the Lord the only salvation anyone ever receives is from the Lord. It's not from anybody else. It's not from anything else. No matter what we see and experience, it is only God who saves us. In all areas, in all manners, no matter the direct or physical causes that He acts through. You know, we're in trouble and so we we had a surgeon who chops something out and rescues us. Or we have a fireman who rescues us from a burning building, or we have a generous neighbor who helps us when we can't cut our grass or can't eat. And we have intelligent counselors who lead us in directions which walk us out of troubles. But every instance of salvation and rescue is from the mind of God who has all knowledge and power and works all things after the counsel of His will. And all of these intervening causes of rescue for the Lord's people are all from the hand of God, just like the waves and the billows and being cast into the sea was from the hand of God. All these things are from the hand of God. And so whenever we're blessed by these things, we give thanks to the person who did them for us, but we give thanks to God primarily because He ordained those people and He provided those people. And He urged those people to provide help to us. And He upheld those people when they were providing rescue for us. It's just that in Jonah's case, it wasn't people, it was a fish. And yet God just as surely directed that fish as He directs the surgeons and the firemen and the neighbors and the friends and the counselors and whatever other method God uses to bring us rescue and deliverance even half steps toward rescue ought to be given thanks for. You see, Jonah's challenge to us is not to wait till the rescue is finally complete. As soon as we perceive any part of God's salvation, we are to give Him thanksgiving and praise. Even while we're still in the depths of trouble, every little step along the way, ought to be given thanks for to God. And we ought to consider the ways in which God wrought those steps and be clear about His responsibility for them, even as He used other means. So, if you woke up today feeling better than yesterday, praise God. Praise God now. Don't wait to get fully healed. Don't wait for that. You can give praise like Jonah did even when you're only halfway there or even less than half. If the Lord has provided a way to pay your bills, give praise to God with thanksgiving even though you don't know where next month's money's coming from. Just because you see trouble coming up, give thanks that God has sustained you thus far, you see. All of these things are the lessons which we ought to learn from Jonah's thanksgiving in his time of distress. Jonah could have complained that now he was being slowly consumed by this fish. Instead, he saw the fish as providentially given to rescue him from drowning, and he gave thanks. And sure enough, Jonah's hope in God was fulfilled. We read it in verse 10. And the Lord spoke unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Now I'm sure that the cynics and the modernists and the materialists will say, well, Jonah just was indigestible. And it wasn't the fish's normal diet, and so the fish worked and worked and churned and churned and got sick in his stomach naturally and vomited out Jonah. But notice it says, the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. However it was that God orchestrated it. the fish finished the job of rescuing Jonah. He got him from the depths of the sea onto dry land. After that, the fish was out of it. He had done his part. But the Lord had superintended it all and had ordained it all and had carried it all out. Now, we see in the story of Jonah a picture of Christ's travails, don't we? We read this morning in Matthew chapter 12, at verse 38, how the Lord connected himself to this incident in Jonah's life. Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Notice that Jonah was thrown into the deep because he had sinned. Christ was thrown into the the depths of death, wasn't he? Because he was obedient. He had obeyed God in all things, his Father and because our sins were laid upon Him. So there is both a comparison and a contrast in Christ and Jonah, how they ended up in such a dreadful place of judgment. Christ, for His obedience and for our sins, laid upon Him. You remember in Psalm 69 that this idea of Christ's sufferings on the cross being compared to being overflown by the deeps of the sea is clearly laid out. But notice the sailors were the people who did the deed of throwing Jonah into the water. But Christ, it was the Jewish leaders and the crowds and the Romans. And yet in both cases, it was God that overthrew Jonah into the sea. It was God that took Christ to the cross and put Him to death. No matter what human methods God used. In each case, it was the Lord's doing. The Jews and the Romans and Pilate and the soldiers did everything to Christ on the cross as was ordained and determined to take place by God. So you see that God had Christ put to death and yet He used the hands of wicked men to accomplish it. You know, that flood that overwhelmed Christ, he was rescued from it. You remember that Jonah said that God had rescued him from the corruption of death when he saved him from drowning in the depths of the sea and deposited him into the belly of the great fish. I was struck by that verse that God had rescued him from corruption because you remember that Jonah was rescued by the fish, but Christ was rescued by God the Father raising him from the dead. Remember in Psalm 16, Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. So there is an interesting use of that term corruption in both contexts to describe God rescuing His servant, either Jonah Or the Lord Jesus Christ Himself that He would not see corruption. And yet the Jewish people would not believe even the sign, would they? Christ gave them a perfectly good sign that I will be in the ground three days and three nights. The implication is then I'll rise again. Then Psalm 16 will be fulfilled in me. Even as Jonah, after being in the depths of the sea, in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, he was delivered... Safely on the dry ground. And the Jewish people and their leaders still wouldn't believe that Jesus was Messiah, would they? They still wouldn't believe He is Messiah. They wouldn't believe the sign. They were always like that in the end. They always demanded a sign. And when God gave them a sign, even if they temporarily listened up, before it was too long gone, they would turn away from God again because they were not, ever impressed with the signs that God gave. You see, when we give thanks for believing the gospel, it is for the work of God that caused us to believe. Here's the deal that if the Lord wants the people to believe in the sign of Jonah, He will take action to do so, won't he? And who He has mercy on, He will have mercy and whom He... Does not have mercy on when he hardeneth. So, when we realize that Christ has suffered and died for us and that our sins have been paid for and that he has saved us, when we do that and when we give thanks for it, we need to be conscious of the fact that we're giving thanks to God and to his Holy Spirit for causing us to believe these things and to trust in him in the first place. And we're sort of like Jonah in the sense that we've been saved, reconciled to God, we have peace with God, we've been justified, declared completely righteous because of the blood of Jesus, and we've been clothed in His righteousness, and we've been given an inheritance, we've been made sons by adoption, given an inheritance, promised everlasting life. But in the metaphor of Jonah, we still haven't been vomited up onto the dry ground yet, have we? We're still waiting for what Paul says in Romans 8 is the ultimate act of adoption, the redemption of our body. But it's promised. It'll come someday. Christ's Word is clear. His promise is true. And so we're to give thanks now. We can give thanks for the things we know will happen one day. We can give thanks to God for the resurrection that He's promised to us. Even as we give Him thanks in all things, whether they've been accomplished yet, or whether we are sure because of the truth of God's Word, they will be. Reminds me of the verses of that song we love so well. With joyful hearts we raise our song as those who have been blessed. Each one thus cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why am I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come, "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly forced us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin.'" You know, we see God's purposes and sovereign power by which He rescues us from the first to the last, even as God rescued Jonah from the first to the last, from being thrown into the sea being brought back to dry land, first and last, God rescued his prophet for his own name's sake and that he might accomplish his will in the rescuing of a nation of lost people way over in Nineveh. And so, to all these things, we say, To God be the glory. May we be like Jonah and start giving thanks, even when the rescue is only partly achieved even when there is trouble ahead of us, even when there are things that we haven't been rescued from yet that we greatly desire and beg and pray we will be rescued from, we must remember to give thanks in all circumstances for the great work and great power of God towards us in all ways. And at the Lord's table, we celebrate what it is that Jesus did when He laid down His life for His people when He was overflowed by the waters of death on Calvary's tree for us, when He poured out His blood, His soul and His blood unto death and made an atonement for us. And no doubt He knew better than any of us because He is God. The testimony of Jonah and the fact that at every step along the way, God His Father had been merciful to Him and would give Him grace and raise Him up to the heights of glory one day as had been promised to Him since all eternity. And we love to eat of this bread that pictures that body of Christ that was broken for us and drink of this cup that pictures His blood that was shed for the new covenant, for the forgiveness of sins and to marvel and to give thanks and praise that God has brought each of us who have trusted in Jesus to this place and to know that He will take us all the way to glory one day soon. Well, I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And he said, take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. O God, our Father, we rejoice in Your goodness to us through Your Son Jesus that although the billows rolled over Him in the death that He died, His life was given up as a sacrifice for his people, and shed his precious blood to make an atonement for us, to make a propitiation for our crimes against you. And it is for the forgiveness of our sin that his blood was shed. And we thank you that he left us this symbol to celebrate him by, to remind us of the fact that all of our life and hope and glory depend on what was done to His physical body and to His physical blood, whereby a reconciliation and an atonement was made for the sins of Your people, whereby You were satisfied, justice was satisfied, the promises of judgment against sin were satisfied in the Lord Jesus. And we thank You that You gave Him the ability, the courage, the willingness, the love, the obedience to do these things for us and that His prayers were answered. He was delivered. As the psalmist in Psalms 22 makes it clear, He was delivered. When you raised Him from the dead, help us not to be foolish and demand that all things be accomplished, all rescues completed, before we will give You the praise and the glory. But to praise and to glorify Your name even when we see the smallest step along the way towards the rescue of Your people from all troubles, sin, sorrow, want, fear, sickness, whatever the case might be, help us to give You the praise for it. And like Jonah and like the Lord Jesus, look to that day when it will be completed, when it will be consummated, when we can give You even more praise and thanksgiving for all eternity. And we thank You for this cup that symbolizes how it is that our sins are forgiven by the dying of the Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it, and He said, Drink ye all of it, this cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Well, let's stand and sing that great hymn by Isaac Watts at page 158 in the Black Book. How sweet and holy is the place with Christ within the doors where everlasting love displays the choices of her stores. Let's stand and sing this together. Number 158.